Okay, Genesis chapter 38. We're skipping over chapter 37 because uh, the executive pastor, uh, <laughs> Tim, uh, was supposed to teach chapter 37, but I should I say supposed. But anyway, we a little bit of a confusion there. So I'm going to teach chapter 38. Um, 37 begins the story of Joseph's uh, selling into slavery, his attempted murder uh, by his brothers. And we'll touch on that just a little bit today. Is in as far as it relates to one of his brothers, Judah. So it's a really interesting chapter, to put it mildly. And again, it's one of those chapters that a lot of commentators, um, or I should say a lot of pastors want to skip over. It's not necessarily (laughs) your Sunday morning sermon where you're addressing everybody in mixed company. But anyway, we're going to look at that. And as typical, we're going to see in this chapter is what we have seen from the, excuse me, From the beginning, as we're looking at the book of Genesis, um, the story of Scripture, of the Scriptures, the continued theme is obviously that Yahweh is God over everything. He's perfectly sovereign, he's perfectly holy, he's perfectly just. And his desire is to see himself glorified in every action he does. Like it says in Revelation, the God received the glory for everything, right? But it's all part of this glory is in blessing people and showering his mercy and showering his grace and his undeserved merited favor on people. And we're going to look at more people again that didn't deserve any grace from God, which, of course, that's what grace means. That's a definition thereof. But their actions didn't show anything that would move God's hand to bestow things upon them. But rather just the opposite is God moving his hand upon their hearts and bringing conviction and then blessing them and their response and their following actions are worship to God, right? So it's the same thing we see see over and over again. We see these incredibly flawed, really disturbing things happening. Now, interestingly enough, I heard an interview with Tucker Carlson this week. I think he did it like on Tuesday or something. I don't know who interviewed him. It appeared to be a pastor. I don't know the details. I saw, I saw a short clip on YouTube that came up in my feed. And Tucker Carlson, who is an Episcopalian, doesn't mean much anything today. And he doesn't really claim to be a Christian necessarily. He claims to be an Episcopalian first. Anyway, he said he just began to start reading the Bible this year. Did you see that, Mark? And so he began to read the Bible this year, starting right from the beginning. And he said this. I won't quote him word for word, but he said this paraphrase. I was amazed when I started reading it and started looking at the Bible that You can't escape that this is incredibly flawed people that are being acted upon by God to have his will accomplished in history. And Tucker Carlson was using that to say that he felt like he was being acted upon by outside forces he knew nothing of to accomplish something. And it was really interesting because he's digging into these spiritual truths. Jordan Peterson, the same thing. You've got these incredible intellectuals that are coming out and saying there's something more to what's happening out there. There's a really popular podcaster named David Rubin. Rubin is a gay man, or I should say homosexual man, and uh, <coughs> sodomite, as we would say. And he's a kind of a, he was a big time liberal podcaster and a radio host. And he was part of a group called the Young Turks, which you may have heard of. Super popular liberal leftist group. Well, Dave Rubin was so-called red-pilled and has so-called become conservative, as conservative as you can be anyway, and still practice sodomy. But anyway, he had Frank Turek on his program. I don't know if you know who, uh, just I think two weeks ago, Frank Turek is a popular Christian apologist who speaks on college campuses. And he's woefully, completely deficient when it comes to understanding God's sovereignty and the depravity of man. However, he's, he is a bright dude. He does a lot of good apologetics work on, on campus 
ministries. He was on Rubin's podcast. And so Dave Rubin, who, who used to be an atheist, was saying the same thing that Tucker Carlson is saying, the same thing that Jordan Peterson is saying, and a lot of other people. It's like, the and, and really what he was focusing on, Rubin, was this whole atheist movement has completely fallen apart. If you remember the four horsemen of the atheist movement, uh, I won't go through all of them at the moment, but uh, Hitchens and, and, uh, and uh, Dawkins and a couple other guys. And, and Rubin was just saying they've all fallen apart. They're all gone. This atheist movement is really falling apart. Going back to one of our primary foundations of our biblical fellowship, Romans chapter 1, all men are without excuse because the law of God is written on their hearts. The conscience shows every man, every man knows there is a God, including Dave Rubin, the homosexual, Jordan Peterson, the intellectual, Tucker Carlson, the Episcopalian. You can't escape it. So <clears throat> having said all of those things, Carlson was getting at what we understand, God's sovereignty. They're being... We're being acted upon by God's sovereign work to reveal himself to man. And in that revelation of who he is, we can see some incredibly appealing things right away as man that we love. The appealing things are God's grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy, and his magnanimous ways in which he blesses people. We all want to hear that, right? The, the atheist movement wants to hear those things. But their biggest thing is tolerance, right? So-called tolerance is love. Tolerance is really, in my opinion, nothing more than, I don't care. You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. Tolerance is not a virtue. It just means I just don't care. I don't care enough to try to change your mind to do the right thing. Well, anyway, so they, the natural man can really pick up those things, right? However, the aspects of God that we don't like are his justice, his holiness, his wrathfulness, and his perfect sovereignty. Men wrestle with that. The Christian church wrestles with that. If I was listening to Christian radio this week, and man, all it is is mercy, grace, and love, and blessing, and other, there's no mention all week long. I'm listening to all this music. There's no mention of sin. The closest I get to shin, sin is shame or contempt in their songs. You've rescued me from shame. You've, rec rec you've rescued me from life of misery and desperation but not rescue me from the wrath that I deserve from a holy God, because even the Christian church hates it, right? And so here we are now. We're going to see another revelation of God being holy, and being perfectly sovereign, and using really wicked sinners, just like he's always done. It's interesting, I think, that in today's society, Tucker Carlson probably is closer to the truth of the revelation of Scripture, and I hate to say it, but it's absolutely true, than most of the evangelical church. I'm not even talking about the confessing church, most of the evangelical church would bristle at hearing that God forcibly acts upon man without man's permission. One of the greatest actions that God has done for mankind was to forcibly act upon Mary and place the son of God in her womb. He acted upon his own free will without her opinion whatsoever. Hey, Mary, do you mind if I implant the Messiah into you? She had no choice. But by God's great sovereign work, we've been saved because he didn't ask for Mary's opinion. Anyway, that's the precursor to today. So Genesis chapter 38, we're going to look at this instance with Judah. Okay. Okay, one other thing. Sorry, that was uh, intro one. Here's intro two. <laughs> intro number two. Um. Tim was teaching on genealogies last week. I've taught on genealogies in the past. Christians often have said, what's up with the genealogies? The genealogies are almost some of the most important aspects of Scripture. It's like, why can you say something? That 
That sounds insane because God promised that the Messiah was going to come through a certain line. First of all, through Eve and then through Abraham and then through Isaac and through Jacob and eventually through Judah, who we're going to talk about today. And then going right through this genealogy, if Jesus did not fulfill the prophecies that God spoke of through this genealogy, he would not be Messiah. And we wouldn't know that he came from this genealogy if it were were not for the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture and the preservation of these truths. So when we look at Judah today, he's extremely important because he's in the line of the Messiah. Specifically, Jesus comes from is the line of the tribe of Judah. Okay, and so Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. Right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the twelve sons. This is where they really start to spread out. So in this genealogy, as important as it is. There's somebody who doesn't want Messiah to be born, who does not want God to receive glory, and who wants to terribly rip off all of those who God has redeemed. And that's the adversary. That's Satan, right? And so he has been plotting from the beginning, trying to thwart the Messiah coming from this lineage, this genealogy. And so here is, we're going to see him going after the genealogy again. Because Satan knows that if he can stop, he thinks, if he can stop this Messiah from being born, he's going to stop the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. What's that prophecy? Bam! The Messiah is going to crush the head of Satan. <laughs> Had to put some emphasis there. So he's so if he thinks maybe in his mind he can stop this Messiah from being born, his head sh- won't be crushed. Well, that's not going to stop God. <laughs> Amen. So God's will is going to be accomplished in redeeming man. So all this work we see in Scripture of this trying uh, to stop even the angels of the sons of man or sons of God that came in under the daughters of men that we read about in Genesis that we believe is really supernatural beings coming down to earth and cohabiting with women. That was a way of polluting mankind so that they couldn't have Messiah could have been born. And all of this attempt by Satan to try to keep uh, uh, Sarah from uh, having children and Abraham and so on and so forth and trying to inspire Abraham to try to have a child with his maidservants, and all this was the work of Satan. So, all right, that's my intros. Now, let's look at chapter 38. Now, it happened at that time that Judah, who was, excuse me, remember, he's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, that Judah went down from his brothers, and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Now, Adulamites were Canaanites. Hira was this, this guy. And uh, he was a friend of Judah's. Now, this is interesting. Why put this in Scripture? Well, we see oftentimes in Scripture, we've seen this in the past, that God was calling Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, which, remember, was Babylon, right? It's modern-day Iraq. Called him out of there to go to Israel before the name was changed. So it was Canaan at the time. Of course, Canaan gets changed to the name Israel. So the people are now Abraham's descendants, his his grandchildren right now, um, great-grandchildren, are in the land of Canaan. And here, here um, we see what happens, and we've seen this in the past, where the chosen people of God, Abraham's descendants, will choose Canaanites as partners. And we see the ensuing problems when people entangle themselves with others who are pagans. So here you have the monotheistic religion of Judah and of Jacob, and he's partnering with Canaanites. He finds a friend in Hira. So look at verse 2. So Jacob now is friends with Hira, hanging out with Hira. Okay. Yeah, what did I say? Jacob. Sorry. Thank you. So Judah 
It's hanging out with Hira, kicking back with some beers, some Bud Lights probably. And <laughs> there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And she, he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So Judah, who is the grandson of Abraham now, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, finds a Canaanite woman to marry. Probably shouldn't have gone in that direction at all. <laughs> Through probably his friend, his relationship with his friend. Marries a Canaanite woman, and she has three sons. Interestingly enough, look who names the son. She does, instead of him. To me, it's this subtle kind of thing. It's like, where is the authority going? And it wasn't they named them, or he named the children. She did. It's, again, to me, it's speaking of what we've seen before and I've highlighted in the past. It's like, where are these fathers in leading their godly families? It should be. They're continuing to do incredibly stupid things. So look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death, just like that. So we don't know what Ur did, but he did something pretty rough. So his firstborn son, married to, Jude, to Tamar, is killed. Then Judah said to Onan, this is his secondborn son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So this was, uh, I just learned this week, um, was a custom that was practiced in much of that, that culture. The Canaanites, the Hittites, they all practiced what was later known in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as the levirate marriage. And God had instituted from this point forward, about four or 500 years later, when God spoke to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, he was instructed to the people of Israel that if you have a woman who is married to a man and that man dies and she has not yet had a child, it is the responsibility of the, the brother of the widow to marry her and have children so that she could have children that would take care of her. So it was a matter of providing for her, as well as the name of the man who died, his name will be passed on through the new marriage, interestingly enough. So it was a way of the name of that dead man to carry the way of it for him to carry his name on and a provision for the woman. Pretty weird, but that was the custom. Now, again, this was a custom not only that God commanded the Jews to do, but it was practiced by the Hittites at that time period. We've talked about these things before, like the rite of circumcision. That was practiced in pagan culture. God took this pagan practice and actually made it, um, uh, Judaized it, I should say, made more truth out of it. And we don't know how much information God passed down to Adam and Eve that went through all these cultures and get to the Tower of Babel eventually that spread out. And so much of the truth that God had communicated to early man was diluted and perverted and counterfeited as the Tower of Babel um, divided the languages and the nations began to separate it from there. Yet we still see in all these nations and all these pagan cultures, even the polytheistic ones, there's always the greatest theme is this, blood had to be shed some way for forgiveness to, be, to take place. That's the commonality of every religion. 
right? So we see even greater commonalities like this whole leverate thing, which is really interesting. I, I, was, I was fascinated by finding that out. So here, um, Tamar, it would understand this, this, this uh, principle. Obviously, Judah understood this principle. And it was a very strong cultural emphasis to do that. In Deuteronomy chapter 35, there's a really funny, or 25, which gives us leverate marriage. It's really hilarious that if you, the, the brother can refuse to marry the widow, but if he does, it's very dishonorable. And she was to go in the presence of all the elders of Israel, take the sandal off his foot, spit in his face and bring him dishonor and then they could be out of the marriage okay so pretty pretty weird but it was interesting practice okay so so this could happen so look at what happens so onan now is supposed to perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up an offspring for his brother but look at verse 9 but onan knew that the offspring would not be his child yeah, it would be his child biologically, but the name would go to his brother, Ur, okay? Ur was the firstborn. Guess what that meant? Onan, who now is number two, actually is number one, who was number two, receives the first blessings of the, of the firstborn child. So Onan is ready to get some money from dad, okay? And <clears throat> interestingly enough, his dad was the one, Judah was the one who sold Joseph. And he came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, chapter previously. So the other ones wanted, they all plotted to kill him. But at some point, Judah sees some Canaanites going by some slave chariots. And he said, I got an idea. I'll sell them. I'll make some money off of them. Since the father had been passed on, he had the greed of Judah. Remember, we saw the greed of Jacob. He wanted all the firstborn blessings. And, but at the same time, there was some faith mixed with it. Won't get into all those details. But here we see the same continuing theme. We see continuing theme we see with these people is this constant jockeying, jockeying for position. And I can't help but to see in this probably the result of polygamy. There's always this competition. You've got some kids that came from the father with one of the wives and the kids that came from the father with one of the other wives in that marriage. And there's always this competition instead of this mutual building up of brothers and sisters. So anyway, here we see Onan. He's like, oh, gee, I don't want to get involved in this because I'm going to lose my money probably is what he's thinking. So look at what happened in this second part of uh, verse nine. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste he would waste the stuff on the ground <laughs> so as not to give offspring to his brother. So notice he intentionally did not do what he was supposed to do. Okay, This is not a judgment necessarily against trying to um, stop babies from being born when you get together as a husband and wife. But this was his purposeful intention to not raise up an offspring to provide for his sister-in-law. Okay, So this was his sin. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. Just like that. Interestingly enough, Onan's name means strong or vigor. So God killed strong. God called vigor. God killed vigor. He killed strong. I love this, this paradox here, this plan words. And so God puts him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, Sheila, my son grows up. So here he tells Tamar, okay, again, I got a third kid, but you can't marry him yet. He's still little. But just go to your dad, and when he gets older, you can marry. I'll, I'll send him to you. But look what he says. Look at the scripture. Says, For he feared that he would die like his brothers. It's like the black widow here. What's Tamar doing to these guys? <laughs> okay. It didn't, now, Judah didn't think to himself, maybe these are really wicked, and God killed them for their wicked behavior. And for some reason, he wouldn't, didn't want to admit that. None of us want to admit our kids are as evil as they are, right? 
some of my kids, it's easier for me to admit they're eviler than the other ones. <laughs> so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay, so here we see J Judah doing what his father Jacob did, the supplanter, the deceiver, the trickster. He's tricking Tamar. He's kind of doing the same thing that Onan did. He's like, ah, I don't want to provide for this wood. Okay, so she goes back <clears throat> to um, her father's house. Now, in the course of time, the wife, excuse me, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Here's, here's Hira again, his buddy, Bud Light drinking guy. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Shelah's in her father's house. See, Shelah's growing up. Sees that Judah did not do what he was supposed to do, so she hatches a plot. And she's going to act as a prostitute in order to get with her father-in-law. Now, what the heck is going on here? This is really messed up. Looking further into Canaanite culture and Ugaritic literature. Ugaritic Ugarit is the language that the Canaanites spoke. Ugaritic li literature said that like that levirate marriage law, they said that if a brother could not be provided, then you would go to the father-in-law. She's doing what a Canaanite would normally do in this situation. Now, we don't see, there's in the Jewish record of it, that wasn't to take place. The father was not supposed to be with her. It was only the brothers that raise up a child. So um, it's interesting when we, the revelation we have from studying archaeology and history that this story gets even more fleshed out, you know, um, so here she is acting as a Canaanite would, not terribly, her actions are not so bad as much as the deception, right? But again, she's just as deceitful as Judah, as deceitful as Jacob, as deceitful as Abraham, and all these other histories we've seen with these people. So here she has this, uh, she's being deceitful. Now, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Um. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in unto me? He answered and said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff, a signet or a ring. And the ring would be around a cord around the neck and your staff that is in your hand. Now, all three of these things would carry identifiers of the owners of these rings and the cord and the staff. So it would be a form of identification. She's like, hand me your license first. <laughs> but it was also a pretty expensive license because it would include um, uh, an expense. It was not a, you know, it would, the signet would also include a lot of times a, a seal that they could uh, imprint on things, right? So this was a strong identifier. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and took off her veil, and she put on the garments of her widowhood. So he goes unto her. The deed is done. She's pregnant. And Judah thinks, okay, I got my – this was excitement for me. I'm all done. I've got – she's got my stuff. I'll send the goat, and this will all be okay. You know, of course, he doesn't know who he was with at the moment. 
So he did what was wrong. He was with a prostitute. He was in fornication. He shouldn't have done it. It was a sin completely against God, and he should not have been involved in that at all. Now, interestingly enough, what we learn also from archaeology is when he took his sheep to be sheared in Timnah, that was often accompanied by a celebration. As the harvest would be um, celebrated, they would celebrate in these pagan festivals, especially in Canaan. And so part of the, the, the uh, celebration and the sheep shearing celebrations where they'd have uh, temple prostitutes. And so people would, men would avail themselves of these women as part of the worship of their gods. Okay. So when she dressed up like this, she was just, it wasn't that exceptional at the time. She was pretty smart, pretty shrewd. She had all of her ducks in a row and she's like, okay, this is all going to work out. Okay. Now remember something. This woman is in the lineage of who? Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually she has Perez, who eventually gives birth to Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David, who gets who through Bathsheba <laughs> goes through Boaz and, and all this and Ruth Moabite. It's like an incredible lineage that comes through our Messiah. Talk about sordid. And so anyway, so here she is um manipulating this situation to try to have this baby, and and it's kind of it's kind of hard to be too harsh with Tamar in this in this text. If you judge her according to the time, right? If you place her in the context, it's kind of hard to be that angry with her. She acted deceitfully, yes, but certainly no more so than every other patriarch that we've seen so far in the Book of Genesis. Everyone's equally evil, okay? In Scripture. God is no respecter of persons. Now look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And so then Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own then, or we'll be laughed at. You see, I, you see, or, or we'll be laughed at, you see. I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So you can almost, it's like this back door deal going on. You know, it's like Judah's like, okay, hey, uh, um, he, he's got his buddy here. He's like, you go take care of this for me. I don't want anyone else to know. We'll keep it quiet. This is why he's probably a friend with this Canaanite guy, because they can kind of do things together, not in the sight of his brothers, inside of his father, where he could be carrying on and doing illicit things. Take care of this for me. And when it's not taken care of, um, he's like, well, listen, she can keep all that expensive stuff. I don't want to get busted here. He did, want, did not want to be known for being with the temple prostitute. And so he's probably thinking, oh, I lost a lot of money on this deal, but at least I'm, my reputation's intact. So he's like, all right, let's just keep it quiet. Um, don't let, let's not, I want to, he's trying to cover his sin, basically. In light of that, I want to read Proverbs chapter five. You can turn there if you'd like. Proverbs chapter five. Starting in verse 20, Proverbs chapter five. Why would, you, why should you be intoxicated, my son? with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. 
He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. That is so base sounding, all that whole thing, the snare of sin and the eyes, the bosom of an adulteress, forbidden women, intoxication, the eyes the Lord sees it all. It's like, it's so seedy, yet the Lord sees all of it. And so here's Judah in the seedy situation with this prostitute whose eye was caught by her gaze and by her beauty. And he pursues his sin. And now he has to walk away, losing something from it. Right. Continuing on in chapter 6, verse uh, 32 in Proverbs 6.32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. You might think you can get away with it, but it's going to catch up with you eventually. Your fornication, your adultery is going to catch up to you. Your sin will find you out. And we're going to see he gets really found out in a dramatic way. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. So Tamar is pregnant. She's not married. Everybody knows about it. This is a small community. Okay. And so everyone's like, this is disgusting. How could she do such a thing? And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. I was like, wow. This guy is incredible, right? He was part of the immorality. Doesn't this remind you of a familiar story going forward about 600 years or so? David, and he took Bathsheba, and Samuel gave him the analogy, and David said, if we could do this thing, that man shall be killed. And Samuel says the famous words, you are that man. And so here we have Tamar, this, or excuse me, Judah pointing the figure at Tam, finger at Tamar, and he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Interestingly enough, in the law of God, that was actually, if you uh, a priest's daughter was in immorality involved in pagan idolatry, that one of the things that she was to be burned. I was surprised. I thought it was just stoning was the Old Testament penalty for sin. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, that one took me by surprise. You know, because I thought, gee, he burned her, it's even worse than stoning. And actually, and I can't believe he came up with that idea. Well, the, God actually instituted that later on. Um, and that, that would be approximately five... A little bit less than 500 years after this event is when Moses is leaving Egypt and God gives him all the commandments, just so you guys know in the history of Israel here. So 500 years later is when God actually binds, bounds, it's bound through Moses in the, in the, uh, in the in his tablets. So he says, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. So Tamar sends word to her father-in-law, Judah. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Whoa. Man, this woman is shrewd. But and this, it's like, okay, she is like, okay, okay, Judah, the man who is the father of my child belongs to these things. So as soon as Tamar sees his stuff, whew, this is, this is the, one of the only positive things about this narrative. Ready? Coming up. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So Judah suddenly struck with humility as the mercy of God brings conviction upon his heart. This is kind of 
one of the only redeeming things in this chapter. And it's good to kind of sit here for a minute and go, Lord, you're gracious and you're merciful. And you don't necessarily, as soon as we step out of line, you don't crush us. Yes, we worry what we sell. But God's mercy goes so far. Because tame, uh, Judah could have been involved in this stoning and this burning. Through pagan idolatry and being part of this, this pagan prostitutional ex, you know, exchange. And so God graciously puts his finger on his heart. Judah recognized it. He's humbled. And you can almost, to me, it's almost like he whispered it. It's like, yeah, listen, yeah. And for three months, he probably thought, okay, I got away with it. You know, he's like, okay, I got away with this sin. It's all covered. It's down in Canaan. It's out of my jurisdiction. This whole thing is over. But nope, he's found out. Interestingly, in Genesis chapter 49, in verse, in ch starting in verse 8, when Jacob, whose name is changed, is changed to Israel, is dying, and he prophesies over his 12 sons. He prophesies over Judah. It's one of the grandest prophecies over all the sons. It says that you're, you know, you're through your lineage is going to come the Messiah. I was going to read it, but we don't have enough time to go through all through that portion of Scripture. So that's your homework to read Genesis 49. We'll get to that in a little few weeks. But anyway, so here we see um, a, at least some glimmer of redemption, of humility, of repentance. And the reason why I can say repentance is because he did not know her again. So he recognized his sin. I'm not going to do that again. And he has to own this, by the way. He is, because when this, uh, because what happens is, we'll read this in a little bit. Tamar has two children. And those two children are in the lineage of Messiah. So we know that Judah took ownership for his action. and said, yep, Tamar's children are from me. Because this has to come from the lineage of Judah. So what, pardon me? Who's the second kid? Yeah. That was Onan. The first was Ur, the second was Onan, and the third was Shem. No, who was the first? Oh, we'll look at it in a second. Perez. Yeah, Perez, yeah. And so we'll get that in a moment. We, I didn't get there yet. Um, the twins. So um, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, where was I with that? Two children. He did not know her again. It was in the Lord's lineage you're talking about. Yeah, in the Lord's lineage. And um, so is Judah and Tamar. Oh, yeah, I, I meant to one quick statement about Judah again. So here he is. <laughs> He's in an uncomfortable position of recognizing what had taken place and raising these children. It's going to be known forever. This is not something you can hide. Incidentally, you know, we look at these instances of men and women and their sin, and we could be thankful <laughs> that we were included. In scripture, right? Because um, if we think about it, there's some sins in our lives that could be hidden from, uh, certainly many are hidden from each other in this room right now. Would you want some of your worst sins being written down for thousands of years so that people can look at your life and say, don't be that person. Don't be a Mark Merklinger. Remember that what he did back? Oh, gosh, what a loser he was. <laughs> but that's what's happening. We're looking at Judah. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine what Jacob did? Look what Judah did. You know, oh, we could judge them and judge them and judge them. And yet, you know, I said for a couple thousand years, but actually the word of the Lord stands forever. For eternity, the scripture is encapsulated. I don't think God wipes out the sinful parts when we're in heaven and new earth, but um, it's, it's recorded forever. So here we have this record forever. Here we have Judah now. He's going to recognize his children coming from his daughter-in-law. 
So look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. <laughs> this is so crazy. Puts a hand out, and you can see the fingers wiggling. <laughs> and so the midwife took and tied, his, tied a, a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. <laughs> and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez means breakthrough, or it means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. So through Perez, through this one who breaks through, is the lineage of Messiah. We see him going through, um, through Perez, I already mentioned earlier, but Perez gives birth to uh, a whole bunch of people, eventually getting down to Jesse and then Obed and David. And uh, even Rahab actually comes through Perez's line. Remember Rahab, the, 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 the prostitute in the temple wall, who redeemed herself by saving the people of Israel when they go into the land of Canaan after they leave Egypt. And she hides the Israelites, keeps them safe. She's included in the line of Messiah. So here we see in this chapter more of the depravity of man, more of God's grace and mercy covering over sins, more of God's plans that are going to be accomplished. Before the foundation of the earth, when were we saved, by the way, according to Scripture? Before the foundation of the earth, right? We were saved. He chose us for the foundation of the earth. When God laid out his plan, there was nothing that was going to stop the glory of the redemption of his people. Nothing. Satan, the adversary, Judah, Tamar, nobody is going to stop the plans that God has for his people, plans to prosper us. For those who belong to him, who were redeemed by the sacrifice of his son, by the shed blood, and by becoming new creations. That is awesome. Nothing was going to stop God from accomplishing that. And so we rejoice in this truth. And this, again, this is the stuff that we could just get so excited about. So many Christians can get excited about. And so many people in the world can rejoice and hear this thing that God loves me. He did all this. He moved heaven and earth, literally, to, to because he loves me. That part is so good and we're rejoicing it. But that is never as sweet as when we recognize it's not deserved. The world says we deserve it. We deserve God's love. We deserve all these things to come upon us. But Christ says no, no. The word of God says no, you don't deserve any of it. But it's because of God's grace and because of the love he has shed abroad, he has chosen to do this work for his people. And that's what really brings humility. When we get to the place where Judah was, where it's like, where do I go with this? David in the Psalms oftentimes said, he said, um, what can I say to these things? And he would say, ah, it was a comment he would make in the Psalms. And, and it was like, where can I go, Peter said, for who has the words of life? We hear these things and it should bring us humility. We hear these things and hopefully we, a finger gets pointed at our heart and says, yeah, I've got a lot of sin. So we have to be thoughtful of the sin in our lives that brings shame to, the, to God, the, to, the, to the church, that, that is, a, is a sin against God. It, 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 in some way, it does affect the emotional heart of God. Otherwise, God would not present himself emotionally through Scripture. I don't want to bring God to down to our level in such a way he's just a superpowered human being. But at the same time, there is a reason why God chose to express himself emotionally oftentimes in Scripture. Because that's how we, <clears throat> that's how we can relate to God. So there is a sense in which our sin brings offense to God, of course, but also some type of way it actually grieves him, that's grievous to him, that causes him some degree of pain. Again, I don't want to, to, to be too touchy-feely with this, 
But there is a reason why it's expressed that way in Scripture, to not quench the Holy Spirit, to not grieve the Holy Spirit like it says in the New Testament. Jesus wept in Scripture. Okay, Jesus said, oh, that I would have gathered you as a hen and gathered his chicks, but you would not. And he lamented over Jerusalem. He saw the people following the wrong direction, and, he's, and, and, he, and he wept that there was many that went the wrong way. Right? So we see this emotional aspect of God that's expressed to us, and it makes the recognition of God's love for us all the greater when we, we see that aspect of God's work in our lives. And again, in, if, if we don't recognize the depravity of man, the grace of man can't be that sweet. The grace of God cannot be that sweet. Spurgeon said, you know, um, I have a great sin, and that needs a great Savior. And if you don't know how great your sin is, your savior, save, savior is not that great. I remember a long time ago, I was witnessing the gospel. This was more than 20 years ago. And uh, sharing the gospel with somebody on a job site, um, a friend of mine, Joe, who got saved. He's pastoring now. And um, I was telling him about the love of Jesus. He loved you so much. He loved you so much. He loved you so much. And uh, it, it was I, not, not much of a hellfire guy at all. And this was uh, actually probably 25 years ago. And... He said to me, what's the big deal? I mean, why wouldn't God love me? You know, if he knows he's going to rise from the dead anyway, so what's the big deal? It radically changed me like that. It hit me like between my eyes. And at that time, Ray Comfort really started to get popular in his tapes, The Way of the Master, about using the law and pointing to sin. And I was like, wow, that it floored me. So I was like, okay, I gotta change my approach. So the next day I came in, Joe, you're going to hell, and God's gonna burn you for all eternity. He's mad at you, his wrath is upon you, and he hates you. <laughs> I guess how Ray Cooper did it. That's how I did it. <laughs> a year later, Joe got saved. So I hadn't seen I hadn't seen Joe in about two years. And he calls me one day, hey Mark, I just want to let you know something. I slept for the for, with peace last night for the first time in two years. Joe Willis? He goes, Yeah. I go, oh my. he goes, Yeah, he goes, I want you to come to church. And Holly with me in a couple of weeks, I'm getting baptized. I'm like, what? Blew me away, you know? So, and that was, I worked with them for three weeks, four weeks at the most. And it was like the most amazing four weeks, one of the most amazing times of four weeks I've ever had. The guy just grilled me every day. What about the dinosaurs? What about this? What about that? What about just apologetics class? And all the apologetics in the world didn't mean anything until he recognized he deserved wrath. And he said he couldn't sleep, couldn't deal with it. He said, I could never worship a God that would send people to hell. That's what he told me. And it was the last conversation I had with him until two years later. Well, I'm <laughs> serving a God now who does some people to hell. But anyway, um, all that to say this, we you know, we got a priestful gospel. We cannot be afraid to, to, to speak clearly on the things that the scripture speaks clearly on. And those aspects of God that we don't like, we need to, to, to really hammer home. You look at Jordan Peterson. It's tearing him up, this God of the Bible that is wrathful. I think Tucker Carlson could be coming a deep conviction for the same thing. Guys like Dave Rubin. And, and, and many of these people who you are watching, it appears to come under conviction. Let's pray for them. So, um, so this is the termination of our study for today. Praise God that in his grace, he's done things that are amazing to save people. And it all works out to his perfect plan for his glory. And it brings us great joy when we see it. So uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that we get to enjoy. We get to mine. We get to to really dig into. We get to um, enjoy it as manna that feeds our soul. We get to enjoy it as a sword that, that divides and, and cuts the marrow, the joints. and It's a double-edged sword. 
We thank you for all of the, the even the hammer that Jeremiah says it is, it smashes the heart. And uh, it also is a bomb to our soul. It's cool water. It's, it's uh, you're the bomb of Gilead that heals our eyes. And, and these wonderful truths that we can rejoice in. It's, it's as if we're, um, uh, we're, like it says in Psalms, we're these uh, people who are by the brook. And um, I'm losing the scripture, Father. But you know what I'm talking about, where we, we're watered by your word. And I pray that as we continue in our worship to you, that our time of communion, our time of prayer, and time of hanging out, we continue to bring you glory. We continue to bring us a weight of our sin and yet the, the, the great joy that we can have and the burden lifted because of your grace and your mercy and your love for us. So we pray that uh, we'd be faithful to you as a worship of the work you've done in our lives. We ask and pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.